and welcome to another SASMA podcast. My name is Nikita Fencham. I'm a medical doctor, a PhD candidate, and a student of sports and exercise medicine. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kate Ackerman for a very special Women's Month podcast. Dr. Kate Ackerman is a sports medicine physician and endocrinologist and the medical director of the Female Athlete Program in the Sports Medicine Division at Boston Children's Hospital. She has specific interests in female athletes, rowing injuries, endocrinology, relative energy deficiency in sport, and bone health. She is also a former national team lightweight rower, chair of the US Rowing Medical Commission, member of the World Rowing Medical Commission, and the course director for the Female Athlete Conference held by Enerly at Boston Children's Hospital. Welcome, Kate, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think to start us off, it's important to highlight what Women's Day represents in South Africa. Women's Day commemorates the day in 1956 when approximately 20,000 South African women of all races marched to the Union buildings in protest of the Passbook, which was a document required to be carried by all South Africans who were classified as Black. And so I think Women's Day not only reminds us of race-based discrimination, but also the courage of these women and what can be overcome when we stand together. But we know that although we've come so far, barriers still exist and cross many spheres of society, and sport is certainly not immune. So Kate, I wonder if you could tell us about your journey into sports and exercise medicine, and perhaps some of the barriers that you faced in entering the field, but also some of the attributes that you think women bring as sports and exercise medicine practitioners. Sure. So obviously I'm coming from a different country, so we have different experiences over here. I can say that I certainly wasn't raised in a situation initially where I felt like I was any less than. I was lucky to have supportive parents who thought I could do what I put my mind to, which is really a a blessing to be in that sort of environment. But as I got more involved in medicine, I think that I'd certainly started to see how women are sometimes brushed aside or they might not get as fast, as far, as quickly because they are women and they're not men. And so my entrance into sports medicine was really as an athlete. So I was a rower. I was lucky to have two female doctors on our U.S. rowing team that were the doctors when I was an athlete. And so I had these great models. I had a a female surgeon who was one of our doctors. I had a female uh, primary care doctor who was one of our doctors. And so that was great that I had that exposure. And I went to medical school and again, had probably 50% of our class was women. And it wasn't until I sort of got more into being an internal medicine doctor and a a sports medicine doctor who often works with orthopedists to see that, oh, well, orthopedics certainly is more male dominant. But internal medicine, I did internal medicine and endocrinology and sports medicine. So internal medicine and endocrinology are really pretty heavily, women are very represented in those fields. But in sports medicine, I would say we're still trying to catch up. And especially in orthopedics, although I'm a primary care sports doctor, orthopedics is very male dominated. So it's been interesting to see what that looks like in terms of access to different resources or viewpoints. And I think women really bring a a different viewpoint when we're talking about how to care for women, how to care for patients, because we are women. And so a lot of the research has been focused on men. And we're here to remind a lot of people, well, we can't keep applying the same things to our female patients. And when you have a female doctor, I think it's sometimes 
just brings that into the conversation a little bit more. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it mirrors my experience. I also did orthopedics and was was very male dominated. But I think if I look at the people around me who I see in sports and exercise medicine at the moment, people like you, like Rachel Harris, like Louise Burke, and then just the proportion of women who are studying with me in sports and exercise medicine, it's really inspiring. And I think it's, it's the future for women in sports and exercise medicine is certainly bright. Yeah, I'm excited about, sorry, I'm going to just build off of that. I think our international community has been very exciting. I think I have people like Karam Khan to thank for giving me opportunities. Here's an international male who's really impressive in the field and was the head editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And I think he identified and kind of mentored some of us women to help us get elevated and help each other. And so having He's for she's basically who are opening doors so that we can get our foot in the door and then help give opportunities to people who are coming from behind us. I think that's really the secret is these people are letting us in, then we do a good job and we're bringing others. So it's a bit of a movement right now. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, That's awesome. So I think if we move now to the female athlete, I think it's just been incredible to see the growth in women's sport. We've had the Tour de France Femme recently. We've had the Nepal World Cup in Cape Town. We're now having the FIFA Women's World Cup here in Australia and New Zealand. It's just, it really has grown so, so much, but obviously there's still a lot of barriers to overcome there. You have significant experience with female athletes. What are some of the big issues or concerns that you see are unique to or perhaps more common in female athletes? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the sport and it depends on the environment. And so when we talk about sports medicine, a lot of us are focused on, well, what is the injury? So certainly we talk about ACL injuries in female athletes. There's a higher rate of ACL tears in our female athletes compared to male athletes in the same sport. In terms of bone stress injuries, female athletes have bone stress injuries more than our male athletes do. But when we talk about the environment for female athlete, that's really important to take into consideration. Are these injuries happening more because of their physiology or is it happening more because of the training that they've had? Is it happening more because of the access to care, the type of fields they're playing on? So I have found it really interesting to study these issues and to talk to people about these issues with a broader context. I've learned so much more about taking it out of just orthopedics or out of metabolic bone workup and broaden the conversation to understand what all the different factors are that could be leading to this. And then how do we change that? Yeah, that I'm going to pick up on some of those topics there because I think there has been a lot of growth in certain areas that are not necessarily proven yet. I think one of the hot topics at the moment is the menstrual cycle. There's just been an explosion in products and apps and programs that target female athletes and claim that it's necessary to train or eat according to the menstrual cycle phase. And there's a lot of confusion amongst not only female athletes, but also practitioners about the current evidence there and whether there are increased risks of injuries or whether we do need to be training according to the phases. So we know that there's a lack of research in females and what does exist currently might not be the best quality. So what do we know about the menstrual cycle influencing training and eating? And how do you think clinicians 
should be advising athletes currently based on what evidence we have? Yeah, I get asked this question a lot. And I think people are mildly disappointed in the answer that I give, which is when we really look into the literature, when we see what has been done so far, we can't say with certainty that there are certain times that you should be training and doing certain things because we don't have great information to support that. And people want to say train around your cycle, but I always take a step back and say, first of all, make sure that you're getting a menstrual cycle. If you are not on birth control, if you're not on any kind of hormonal medication, are you getting a period every month? If you're not getting a period every month, then is there a reason for that? Has that ever been worked up? Did somebody just put you on a birth control pill to mask the problem? If you are getting a period every month and you're trying to get pregnant, for example, are you actually ovulating? So there's so many things just about understanding the menstrual cycle and what that actually means and what the hormones are doing. There's a different sort of hormonal pattern that can be happening in an an ovulatory cycle versus an ovulatory cycle. So then when we're telling women to track their periods and train around them, we don't really know what's going on with their hormones to even do that accurately. So first of all, make sure that someone's actually having a true cycle. If they're not, it could be because they're not eating enough for how much exercise they're doing. And that's an intervention that's very important to, to tease that out. If they're not getting a normal cycle, is it because they have polycystic ovary syndrome that needs to be worked up? So that's where I just kind of start with it. And I think from there, there are so many women where they don't have normal cycles. So all this stuff about tracking your cycle and train around it doesn't apply to them because they haven't even taken care of the basics. So we want to talk about nutrition and making sure they're fueling enough. That's just the base of the pyramid. And then we go up from there. And so if they're eating enough, are they getting enough calcium and vitamin D and iron? Do they have to follow specific diets? All these things to get the right, in general, nutrition. When we talk about training, like in the follicular phase or the luteal phase, we don't have enough data to, to really give definitive answers about what people should be doing. And then if you tease apart, oh, I have an entire soccer football team and we want them to do this type of training, try putting all those people together and having them on a consistent training plan that really works with all of them, it's nearly impossible. Somebody might have a 34-day cycle. Somebody might have a 26-day cycle. So you're not even getting all the hormones in sync. And then you're going to do a strength program that applies to everybody. So I think we just need to just chill out about that a little bit and let us study it while focusing on the things we know can be fixed, can be addressed. We know how to do injury prevention in terms of some biomechanics. We know how to do general nutritional counseling to make sure that the basic needs are met. We know about how to get somebody acclimated in heat and about hydration and electrolytes instead of focusing so much on are you in day 17 of your menstrual cycle. Yeah, that's a, such a good point. And also, if, if people aren't having regular menstrual cycles, as you say, firstly, you've got to address that. But then each month is different. And then how do, it's all the other things that influence it as well. How did you sleep? You know, Maybe that's I, what's causing it. It's not the fact that you're having a period. Um, yeah, the so, thing yeah. I try to remind people all the time is how do they feel if they do really have consistent cycles and they want to know how to train around it? Great. Track your own pattern. See how you feel. One person could be about to have their menstrual cycle and have horrible cramping and barely want to move. Another person might feel this huge burst of energy and want to do extra training. How do different people feel in their individual situation? Absolutely. Great points. I think if we just pick up there on the fact that some 
women don't have a menstrual cycle or is irregular. Obviously, we're we thinking there of relative energy deficiency in sport. And there's been a lot of debate in the literature about whether it's relative energy deficiency in sport, is it overtraining, should it be called the female athlete triad or the male athlete triad? And hopefully the groups will come together at some stage, but what is the current evidence there? What, Where do we stand with relative energy deficiency in sport? When should we be suspicious of it and how should it be diagnosed at the moment? So, for the history lesson for people who are listening, the female athlete triad has a lot of research behind it. It's that combination of low energy availability, subsequent menstrual dysfunction, and then poor bone health. And so absolutely, there is a lot of proof that this is an entity. These things are intertwined. The hormones that are important for menstrual cycle are also important for bone health. So this has been a term that's been around since the 1990s. But in the 2014, the International Olympic Committee's Female Athlete Triad Working Group decided to expand that concept and talk about the fact that relative energy deficiency in sport can happen to, or low energy availability can happen to women and to men. And so maybe we shouldn't call it the female athlete triad. And there are other health and performance consequences of this low energy availability. It's not just bone. It's not just the reproductive system. Those are important, but there are also changes in thyroid function, in metabolism, in cardiovascular health, in the GI system, in infectious immunology. So there's so many other symptoms and systems that we need to consider. And they're not necessarily in an order. So somebody might already, in terms of their performance, have decreased response to workout, not performing as well and, and having their time slow down, all sorts of changes that are what's bringing them to the doctor or to the medical system saying, I don't feel right. And it could be because of the low energy availability, even before there's menstrual dysfunction, even before there's a bone stress injury. So I really like the REDS models, which are not dismissing the triad, but certainly expanding upon them. And full disclosure, after 2014, I soon joined that writing group, that group with the IOC and was part of their papers, uh, their update in 2018. And we have a big group of papers that's coming out later uh, this month, or not this month, sorry, later this year uh, with the British Journal of Sports Medicine talking about an approved screening tool, expansion of the model, updates, um, more things about diagnosis and treatment. So in terms of my personal perspective, I think REDS is a fantastic term because it is more inclusive. It gets this issue to the attention of people a little bit more because now there are different things that they might click in their head that, oh, well, I don't get a period, who cares? Or I get a period, but so I can't have reds. Now they're thinking about other things. In terms of diagnosing it, I'd say every single athlete should be screened for it. And that doesn't mean there needs to be a two-hour in-depth interview about it, but there are some simple screening questions that we as providers should just be aware of. Coaches should be thinking about, athletes themselves should be thinking about. So if people have seen changes in their workout, if they are not feeling that they're performing as well, if they have had menstrual irregularity, if they're having um, some GI symptoms, more bloating, if they've had some mood changes. So in our upcoming documents, we'll explain some of the signs and symptoms that are examples. It's trickier because there are so many sy systems to be thinking about that I think as you do a screening 
of athletes, there need to be some things that are really high on the list to be looking out for and other things that could be subtle that are sort of supportive. And we've developed this new clinical assessment tool. So there was an old one, but we have an updated one with a point system that we're now testing in different populations to see if that helps indicate risk for relative energy deficiency in sport. Oh, wonderful. I think we're all going to look forward to that. Um, I think if we could just quickly pick up on one of the symptoms, and that is bone stress injuries, I think that's a common area of interest for us. So there's, we know that there's multiple factors, both training and nutrition related, that may put athletes at greater risk of bone stress injuries. And one of those is low bone mineral density. So when do you consider getting a DEXA for bone mineral density? And also, when would you consider hormonal treatment, particularly HRT here, in a female athlete with low bone mineral density? So if we're focused on female athletes, we have a few different indications. So I would get a DEXA if I had a female athlete who had any sort of risk factor for REDS and it had two bone stress injuries. I would get a DEXA if they had risk factors for REDS and they had one high risk bone stress injury. So that would be something like the femoral neck, a portion of the hip, the sacrum. So these are areas that were a little bit, it's unusual to have a bone stress injury there. So there might be risk factors because of that low energy availability that's leading to that. Then when I'm also looking at a lot of our female athletes who come in here, if they have had primary amenorrhea, they haven't had their period by the time they're 15 and they have secondary sex characteristics, if they have secondary amenorrhea, if they have malabsorption, if so, if they have known medical reasons that we think that they aren't, that they wouldn't have good bone density, those are also indications. In terms of when I would do hormone replacement, we often do that in our female athletes who have been diagnosed with REDS and have low bone density, and it may take a while to correct. So if it's somebody who just accidentally started on a new team and they've increased their volume and they've missed a couple months of their period, but they didn't really understand it and they got plugged into the system right away and they needed to increase their fueling and they met with the sports dietitian we wouldn't jump to putting them on, on hormonal replacement. But if it's somebody who has low bone density, they might have an eating disorder and it's going to be a while to get them to buy in, to actually make these behavioral changes. And they've had this issue for a while. So even when they get to a normal weight, it could take a while to wake up the hormonal systems for them to get a normal cycle. That's somebody, especially our younger people, where they're really maximizing the building of their bone density during adolescence, and we don't want to miss that window. That's somebody that we would try to give transdermal estrogen to, not a birth control pill, not oral estrogen, but we would do transdermal estrogen because it has a different metabolic effect. It's, it's metabolized in such a way that it will have a beneficial effect on bone. So we would give that to them just as sort of a Band-Aid for the bone density while we're trying to improve the underlying nutritional issues. And then we also match that with cyclic oral progesterone because we don't want to do unopposed estrogen. Yeah, perfect. I think it's actually not uncommon to come across female athletes who've been prescribed the oral contraceptive pill for either amenorrhea or low bone mineral density in hope that it's going to increase it. I think hopefully most people listening to this podcast will know that you cannot put a Band-Aid on it with the oral contraceptive pill. But Perhaps can you explain why the oral contraceptive pill does not increase bone mineral density and also what 
the research says about being on the oral contraceptive pill as an adult, starting it as an adult versus if you start it as a adolescent. How does that affect bone mineral density? So the first thing is the bone density in general that you're going to get for your life is largely built up while you're an adolescent. So those years, teenage years are so critical because that's when we get the most of our peak bone mass for the rest of our life. 80 or 90% of our peak bone mass is acquired by the time we're 18. So we really got to use that time to build as much as possible. If you put somebody on the pill during that time, you don't know if all of their endogenous other hormones are working correctly. So if you have a runner, she might've had her period that was normal for the first few months and then got on the pill. And then you don't really know if she's gotten more muscular and she's doing a lot of volume, if some of her hormones are suppressed. So that can just kind of mask the issue. And that I think is when you've looked at, when people have looked at studies of how the pill might affect an adolescent, that's not always controlled for. Is it that the pill is actually a bad thing? Not necessarily, but if it is masked to this hormonal suppression of IGF-1 and other hormones that are important for bone accrual, then that is probably why the pill has not been so effective in a young person. When we're older, you don't have that same increase in bone density that you would as an adolescent. So it might mask the problem if they're not eating enough, but this isn't as much of the bone accrual. They might be losing some bone mass because they're energy deficient, but the time the time frame is just a different time. Overall, that's the reason we don't want to put somebody on the pill who is at risk or totally has REDS because you haven't correct, corrected the issue of many different hormones that are suppressed. Estrogen is only one hormone, but you're giving them hormones that are treating the estrogen deficiency, but IGF-1 is also a hormone that's important for bone, which is a form of growth hormone. So when you take a pill, estrogen is metabolized in the liver and it downregulates IGF-1. When you take estrogen as a patch, it doesn't have first pass through the liver, so it doesn't downregulate IGF-1. That's sort of the big difference between the transdermal and the oral. Fantastic. So if we end now just touching on research, many clinicians are interested in doing research, but don't feel like they have the tools. And we know that there's a severe lack of research in female athletes. In your opinion, what are some of the areas that are the most crucial at the moment to be investigating? And how should clinicians conduct the research to improve the quality of it in female athletes? That's such a great question. And I think you've just hit the nail on the head of my sort of life goal, which is to build a female athlete center that is a bit of a home base that can really help guide people around the world to do this well. And that's what we've been trying to do in Boston with a lot of wonderful international collaborators like yourself, so that we can really help the young investigators use the resources they have, also provide them resources so that they, when they design a study, we can help critique it. We can help it be a really good viable option so that when they produce their information, we can trust it. Because obviously not just a small group can do this research. We need it to be happening in different populations, in different countries, different experts with different teams and all sorts of folks. And so we've been trying to make this international collective and we've done that somewhat, but we need more of it. So you mentioned some great names early in the podcast. You brought up Louise Burke and Trent Stellingworth and Kirstie Elliott Sale. And there's so many great people that are involved in doing this. Rachel Harris. And so we've been trying to work on a playbook to help people with these different things. And we're continuing to expand that. That's why we do our female athlete conference every other year. 
And when it's about um, topics and, and what to study, I think the other thing that's coming out of the REDS IOC group is we have a methods paper. So we've taken a stab at, hey, here's what we are saying as a group of experts are probably best practices right now or our best attempt to try to get more research done. We have a lot of emerging markers in REDS. So if we can find other tools to diagnose REDS, that would help all of us as clinicians. So if you're going to go investigate some of these tools or investigate some of these symptoms, here are the tests that we think are the most helpful. This is kind of the best we have now, or this one's already awesome, or yep, we're still looking for one. I think it's just important to be transparent about why tests were chosen, why a protocol was done, and to be really transparent about what population you're studying, what questions you asked, how were these athletes picked? We're just trying to come up with more methodology papers for all of it. How do you define the menstrual cycle? How do you define the level of athlete? How do you define the test that you use studying GI or cardiac issues? That's really the key. And I think as a community, we're just trying to come up with better ways for us all to communicate and guide the, the young researchers and mentor PhD students and postdocs and clinical researchers in this as well. Yeah, perfect. I think that's so important because we can't just expand the female athlete research without it being of quality. Yeah. Um, and finally, Kate, we're going to loop back to the beginning. And what are your final thoughts and advice to aspiring women sports and exercise medicine physicians? I think the biggest issue is, well, there's so many. I don't know if I can keep it to one, but I think, A, know your worth. I think so many women get nervous and think that there's not a space for them or they don't have the expertise yet. So know that you can do it. Number two, take the time to get really educated. I think there is a little bit of a difference in generations. I think there's a lot of young people that get impatient and they want to do it now. They want to be doing it. They want to be in it. But there is training that's involved. I did a lot of extra training. I did sports medicine and endocrinology. People thought it was so weird at the time, but now that's really served me well to be able to critically analyze papers, to be able to think through studies. So find a niche and dig deep to learn about it because we need more experts in so many different ways. So do the education, but know that you can do it and it will be worth it. And there is a place for you to help advance female athletes' health and exercise medicine and research. We just need to grow the really educated, smart, motivated army. Great way to end the podcast. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us and for all your wonderful insights. Thank you. Thank you. 